to the fourth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Jessica Plummer. Jessica works in publishing and writes about comics and books in general at bookriot.com. You can hear her talk Superman adaptations on her Superman movie podcast, Flights and Tights, and read her fiction in the upcoming anthology of inclusive Authorian legend retellings, Swordstone Table from Vintage Books. We're going to talk today about adaptations of comics in musical theater. Hey, Jessica. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. So we're going to get started with our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? Um, so the, my earliest experience um, is really fitting for theme, uh, and I don't remember it, but apparently when I was about two, my mother sat me down in front of uh, Annie, the 1982 movie version, and she was like, I've never seen you so transfixed by anything. Like, you just were the, entirely captivated by it, which explains, you know, everything that I'm going to be saying for the next hour. Um, and from that point on, she was like, I guess I'm just going to put my baby in front of musicals so I can get stuff done. Um, but the first uh, live musical that I saw was Cats when I was five. And I did not enjoy it. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what those people are doing. They're not real cats and I don't like it. Um, and it wasn't until I was maybe probably seven or eight and I saw, I think The Secret Garden would have probably been the first musical that I saw live that I actually enjoyed. But by then, you know, I'd seen Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music and The Music Man and Singing in the Rain and anything that my mom could put on and get some peace for two hours. Um, which musical has had the greatest impact on you? I mean, I don't want Annie to be my answer to all of these. Um, and I don't know that I have like, I thought about this really hard. I don't know that I have one perfect answer. Um, there are definitely musicals I've seen over the years that just absolutely like knock my socks off and sort of changed how I thought about musicals. I saw uh, the revival of Once Upon a Mattress with Sarah Jessica Parker when I was 12. And I spent the next two years trying to write basically a bad copy of it. And that's how I learned I can't write musicals, but <laughs> tried really hard. Um, yeah, I just feel like every few years, there's some, I mean, you know, middle school when I fell in love with Les Mis and high school when I fell in love with Rent like every couple of years there's something that I fall in love with all over again which is why I can't get away from the from the genre um what's a musical people may be surprised to find out you love and why would they be surprised I don't think people are ever surprised because I love musicals so much and I'm so loud about it. Um, I think it's more that people are surprised when I don't love something that's a musical or musical adjacent. Like when Glee was on, everybody was like, you don't watch Glee? And I was like, it's not a real musical. And it's very obnoxious about it. Um, 
But for the people who do know my musical tastes, I think probably Joseph um, and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, because I'm not an Andrew Lloyd Webber person. Mm -hmm. um, but that's before he was like Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he was still he was still kind of fun. Um, <laughs> and I I love that show, but when when the organ gets in there, I'm like, I'm out, I'm out, buddy. Uh, it's funny, yeah, because growing up, um, I was not an Andrew Lloyd Webber person at all, except for Joseph. Like, that was, like, the one, that was, like, the one show of his that I really liked, because I saw it as a kid, and yeah, cool. Uh, who is your favorite hero character, or hero character, or protagonist in a musical, and who is your favorite villain or antagonist in a musical well I mean it's Annie but because <laughs> I can't be my answer for everything I'm gonna say Harold Hill because mm -hmm. I adore I mean I love my two favorite types of characters are plucky optimistic orphans who make the world better with the power of the song in their hearts and con men so <laughs> like those two types and they embody them so well um and then for villain um I'm not a huge villain person but I'm gonna say Audrey too mm -hmm. I love Little Shop of Horrors and it's just again just such a fun part like sort of the in a way still kind of in that Harold Hill type like that very charismatic motor mouth he just <laughs> you and take over the planet but you know in a fun way so I've never thought of those two characters compared in that way but I I like it <laughs> what is the most interesting fact or idea or etc that you've learned from a musical I mean I know way more about the student uprising of 18 whatever than I think I normally would that yeah. particular period in French history uh, that Les Mis covers and the the uh, inequities of the French penal code mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of historical musicals that I either kind of take with a grain of salt or I already like I was that really annoying person sitting in the audience at Hamilton going like, yep, yeah, mm -hmm, that's true. I knew about that. <laughs> I was already like a weird Hamilton nerd before that. Um, right. But I encountered Les Mis early enough that I was like, I don't know what's happening here at all. Great. Um, what is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state that you didn't think was possible to get to? Um, so this is maybe not one specific musical but I think because musicals you know obviously every musical it's somebody's first time seeing it and they're not familiar with the story and obviously like new musicals come out where you don't know the story but I think in so many cases because they are th things that sort of enter uh, a canon and are seen over and over again or because they're so often adaptations of things that we already know there's this this weird feeling that happens so um I saw the recent revival of West Side Story and uh I saw it with my mom and we got to tonight and I started sobbing and she was like what's wrong with you 
<laughs> why are you crying? This isn't sad. The sad stuff is later. Right. But I was, I had this moment of like, they're so happy and <laughs> I know what's going to happen to them. Right, right. And I had that same feeling, I remember a million years ago when I saw Wicked for the first time um, um, uh, during the bit in Defying Gravity when they sing the little I hope you're happy bit and I just lost it and again I was sitting next to my mom and she was like what's wrong with you yeah but even though I'd never seen Wicked I knew they were not going to be happy and things were not going to go well for them right and obviously like there's plenty of other works where that have foreshadowing in them and works that are adapted from other things or like you know, you can go see Romeo and Juliet and you can watch the balcony scene and you know that it's going to end poorly. But because musicals reach such intense peaks of joy and they capture those powerful emotions so well, I think they give, they create that catharsis of I'm so happy, but I'm also so pre-sad <laughs> that I have never encountered to quite that extreme in any other format. Right. No, I love that answer. That's great. All right, great. Let's move on to our topic, which is musical adaptation of adaptations of comics. So uh, let's start first with your background with comics as well. I mean, as well as musicals, but, um, and, and why you wanted to talk about this topic. Yeah, so um, I, I mean, as I mentioned, I loved musicals my entire life, uh, as long as I can remember. Um, they were my first love. I have always enjoyed um, comics as a format, as a medium. Um, I was, you know, I loved reading comic strips in the newspaper, as I think, you know, most kids do. And I loved, you know, getting my Calvin Hobbes collections and, um picking up like Betty and Veronica Digest at the supermarket. Um, I didn't get into superhero comics until really until college. Um, and then I just fell very hard into them. Um, I've been a comics scholar ever since I wrote both of my undergraduate theses on superhero comics. Um, I have a podcast on super, Superman movies actually um I uh I write about comics at Book Riot like I'm just it came much later but I'm very hooked on them um and when we were tossing ideas back and forth I was like well oh, here's the thing that I know <laughs> I know a lot about both of these things and I think the intersection of them is super weird and interesting um so and and you were willing to indulge me which I appreciate should we should we start with the first one we're going to talk about which is kind of chronologically um Um, we can so the earliest uh one that we were able to find was Lil Abner which I've never actually seen so my middle school did it when I was in elementary school so I saw it as a fifth grader seeing middle schoolers do it, the show. And I, <laughs> I loved it. Like I, I mean, that's really the last time I've seen it, but, <laughs> but I, 
it was so funny and like it was funny to see all these kids like running around I guess it's like not often done so there's it's hard to it's hard to see it there's a movie version but um yeah but it's a cute show and yeah it's a from the comic strip uh by the same name yeah it's it's funny I think that we have three here um that are adapted from comic strips there's Will Abner there's You're a Good Man Charlie Brown which is adapted from Peanuts and there's Annie um and I feel like all three of them tend to get performed most in schools yeah um, or community theater but they're very like they're all very kid friendly and they have small casts and they don't have a lot of effects and they're very easy Mm -hmm. to do you know we did Annie um yeah at my summer camp and uh the one time that I saw You're a Good Man Charlie Brown was at a local community theater and right. a friend from high school played Snoopy like and actually another friend played Linus like it's yeah they're very accessible in that way um Lil Abner is is interesting to me because uh the the comic strip itself was very much part of a cultural time where like hillbillies were considered the funniest thing that could possibly (laughs) exist and there was all this hillbilly stuff in in media um and the play was 1956 which is like really at the tail end of that and I think that's also probably why even more so than the other two, than Annie and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, it doesn't really have the staying power because mm-hmm. the, I mean, like, I definitely believe you that it's a cute show. I can't really speak to it. Right, but right. the inherent hilarity of hillbillies is right. not necessarily still with us. It's hard to remember now, but it, it, it is, a, especially since I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but it is a satire on, like, a lot of, um you know the government and you know all that that was going on in the at the time like like very like broad like kind of broad humor you know like mm-hmm. the the met there's like a like a tonic that the main character drinks and like all the men are experimented on with that tonic and they all turn into like these big like um muscle men that um uh but the catch and all their wives are like ecstatic but the catch is that they only uh they only care like they they don't care about the women anymore they are only like fascinated with their muscles and so the women are like put there's a whole song like put them back (laughs) which i remember Presumably unintentionally homoerotic. 
but also probably very funny to see middle schoolers doing. Yeah, I can't remember how they did it. They must have, like, had fake, like, muscle things going on, but, um, yeah. Or, oh, you know what they did, I think? They had, like, I think they had the kids, uh, and then the adults came on, and... That's uh, super cute. Yeah, I'm pretty... I, again, I was... 10 so it's, <laughs> it's hard to say but I think that's how they did it so like it's it's like very cute like broad uh humor like that um and the songs are all really catchy like I again have not seen that show you know in forever but I could sing those songs to you I mean like, Johnny Mercer apparently wrote the lyrics which yeah is weirdest places yeah it's it's a really interesting combination of writers as well like but yeah it's it is interesting to think of like adapting from the comic strips and um how those how that works in the adaptation yeah it's so I was thinking about because you know it'd be great like to sit here and say ah yes here's the unified theory of every (laughs) Uh, musical adaptation of a comic but the the list that we came up with has three comic strips uh, two superhero characters mm-hmm. um, one of which like the Spider-Man one is like seems to be pretty closely tied to the Spider-Man movies whereas Superman was sort of just created whole out of whole cloth and then fun home which is an adaptation of a graphic memoir so it's Mm -hmm. completely different than the other products which are episodic and long-running and this is one single book right Um, so it's hard to say like these are all the same thing um but looking at the comic strips in particular as a whole is interesting to me um and we can talk about this a bit more with um you're a good man, Charlie Brown, but comic strips are so episodic. Um, and some of these mm-hmm. ran for so, so, I mean, Annie ran from 1924 to 2000, which yeah. is just, I mean, not by the original writer. He died in, uh, or 2010, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. He died in 1968. But, you know, when they canceled Little Orphan Annie in 2010, I remember everybody going, Little Orphan Annie was still in newspaper. It was only yeah, in ten papers at that point. I didn't know that. I didn't know at the time either. I do remember that too. Yeah. Um. And so it, it's when you're adapting it, it sort of raises the question of, well, do you create a narrative that's you know point A to point B, which Annie as a musical certainly does. Like it's mm-hmm. sort of her origin story, right? Um. Because the the comic strip is not about her being adopted that's like you know that happened in 1924 and after that it's just you know annie like fighting bank robbers and going into outer space and (laughs) having increasingly bizarre adventures um whereas you're a good man charlie brown really takes a much more it does do sort of an episodic thing it's Mm -hmm. like here's a schroeder number linus loves blanket lucy's pulling the football away snoopy wants dinner like it's very yeah, and in a way that makes it really great for kids because there's like everybody kind of gets like a a moment, you know. Yeah, and in some ways it feels a bit more true to the source material. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like from your description that Lil Abner is 
more of a took more of the Annie route and has more of a yeah. clear plot line. It, yeah, it does have like a like an arc of a show. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know with Annie they said like, well, especially coming off of the Superman show because it's the same composer that he like didn't want to go he wanted to get like farther away from like doing something that resembled like the comic that he wanted to do uh this is charles strauss that he wanted to like really like make it a like a feel like a musical as opposed to you know yeah like knowing that it's adapted yeah yeah and having seen both uh the superman musical and Annie, I he made the right call there. Um, <laughs> I mean, the the Superman musical is in some ways very. It does feel kind of. It has a plot, mm-hmm. um, but it does almost feel episodic because it could be the plot of literally every Superman comic that's ever been made. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, again, Annie is an origin story, so it's not. Uh, even though, as I was saying earlier, you know, musicals enter the canon and we see them over and over again and these stories become very familiar to us and certainly, you know, superhero origin stories become very familiar to us. I mean, how many times have we found out how Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man at this point? Right, right. <laughs> um, which is one of the reasons that I think that um, these two formats kind of go well together. Um and it's a little surprising to me that there aren't more of them um, yeah. because they are reiterative in similar ways. Um, but yeah, there's definitely character growth um, in Annie in a way that there isn't in uh, in the Superman musical or in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. or Right. Yeah, the Superman musical, I guess we can talk about that next before we get into into Annie. Yeah, I saw, um, so they did, um, it, the Broadway show premiered in 66, and then mm. there was a TV special version of it in mm. 75 with Leslie Ann Warren as Lois, um, and I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, so, and it sounds like, you know, there's some stuff that was changed like I'm just looking at Wikipedia right now and uh it says uh between the 66 version and the TV version uh among other things the ethnicity of a troop of evildoers was changed from Chinese acrobats to mafia style gangsters so <laughs> sounds like maybe they they move some stuff around when they adapt it which good um the songs are really fun and they're very enjoyable um there's that one makeover song called you've got possibilities i want to say so so cute where like clark kent's getting a makeover to be like less of a schlub yeah the plot is just it's just a watered down it's like lex luther has an evil plan except he's not even called lex luther he's called mm-hmm. like max something and 
Oh, right. Yeah, which is like, but that's Lex Luthor. Like, that's clearly Lex Luthor. Why did you change the name? It's not like you didn't have the rights. I feel like we should also uh, note here, we keep calling it the Superman musical. The actual title is, it's a bird, dot, dot, dot. It's a plane, dot, dot, dot. It's Superman. (laughs) With no exclamation point on the end. I really feel like if Oklahoma can have an exclamation point, this should have an exclamation point. But I feel like you... You lost a lot of viewers with that. Just call it Superman. <laughs> like, yeah. It's ridiculous like they title. trying to make it very comic booky with that or something. I don't even know where it's a bird, it's a plant, where that phrase even came from. It's, it's from a radio show, actually. Okay. So Superman first premiered in the comics in 1938, um, mm-hmm. and there was an extremely popular radio show that started in, I want to say 1940. It was thereabouts. It was very early. That all came from the radio show and then got picked up like by the TV show in the 50s and sort of fed back into the comics. It is mostly a workplace rom-com, which is actually what I firmly believe Superman should primarily be and Mm -hmm. why uh Lois and Clark the 90s tv show is the best adaptation um so yeah if if you lean in that direction you don't really have to worry about like heat vision but right there is a certain you know when you have a main character who can fly yeah and you're not doing Peter Pan um do you do you try to make it look cool or do you steer into the camp of it and just go ridiculous? And like the 1975 TV version absolutely went full ridiculous. And yeah. it is actually very funny. Um, not in a way that really saves it, but I could mm-hmm. see live like being caught up in the absurdity of it. Yeah, but I, I to, from my memory, like it wasn't anything that was, yeah, that was necessary for this like because they weren't yeah. really it wasn't like spider-man where it was you know all about the really like all about the effect. yeah <laughs> i i don't even remember how, like how big a character superman really was in everything that was <laughs> that was going on because there were so many other characters yeah he's not as big a character as you would think. Like, again, it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's very much a workplace rom-com or farce almost. Like, mm-hmm. there's just, which I think, again, like, I think is a good idea for a Superman story in general. I was thinking, you know, in general terms about comics and musicals, like, and how they fit together. Um, and they're both, you know, the, the, the genres or the, mediums um have so much in common in a lot of ways like they both uh emerged in primarily in new york city Mm -hmm. or at the turn of the 20th century largely the work of jewish people um out of these you know very uh sort of Declasse industries and like populist media and things that were not looked at very highly and they're amalgams of multiple formats that developed a vocabulary that we understand as oh that's what a musical is oh that's what a comic book is or a comic strip 
like around the 20s and 30s is when you start to see like they're very much working on the same timeline um they they hit like their golden ages and their silver ages kind of uh overlap very much um you would think that they would go together a little bit better that there would be more of these adaptations and i do think that the other thing that they both do is they both take like meld words with something else mm -hmm. like a combination of words and pictures a combination of words and music to create storytelling that can't be done like the things that musicals do cannot be done Mm -hmm. in other formats the things that comics do cannot be done in other formats and maybe that's why they can't they often can't make the leap from one medium to the other right. um but yeah something i mean there's something inherently ridiculous about the idea of a superman musical or a spider-man musical and i i had a theory after seeing dracula the musical that uh <laughs> Musicals are histrionic and vampires are histrionic, so you can't put the two of them together because it's double histrionics and that's too much. Well, I guess that leads us to Annie in 1977. That's kind of like a 10-year gap until the next to the next show. So from a from a comic script. Um yeah, I mean Annie's probably like the most famous one on on this list <laughs> oh yeah by by far um which is funny because i mean i think most well i don't know do you think most people know that it's from a comic well that's the thing i they they might not because i mean i i think i knew like it was in the conversations growing up when I watched Annie as well, it was like, yeah, it's from a comic, but you can't, you don't know that from seeing the show at all. Like it's yeah. not, it's not something that's like built into the show. It's not. No. The way like we were talking. Yeah. Like we were talking about with your good man, Charlie Brown, it's very structured. Like the comics are structured or even Superman is structured. Like the comics are structured and Annie. It's just a story about a plucky redheaded orphan and her dog. Yeah, and they really, I think, as I said earlier, like, they really wanted to get away from making it, like, the comics. Like, it was really, they wanted to, like, make it about New York, New York City, and, you know, all this other, bringing all this other stuff in it. And, yeah, having it be an origin story for how she met Daddy Warbucks in the first place and, like, what that adoption could have looked like and um yeah i also think it's really interesting to compare the political context of mm -hmm. each version of the story because so um uh charles gray or harold gray sorry who uh was the original cartoonist of the comic strip um was a staunch conservative who <laughs> hated FDR and the New Deal so much that in the comic strip he killed Daddy Warbucks off like he died of horror at what was happening to his country because like the New Deal would ruin everything which oh is just so funny to think about like considering like the way that you know 
we learn about the New Deal as something that saved the, the country and the economy. Um, right. But yeah, in protest, Harold Gray killed off Daddy Warbucks, and then I think he he was dead for like the entirety of FDR's time in office, and then after he died, uh, Harold Gray was like, oh, I guess Daddy Warbucks was alive the whole time, and like, oh, he was fine. Um, and then, you know, you jump ahead to 1977 which is a really vastly different political climate and has a very different perspective on things like the new deal and the great depression with also with writers who are probably have a different perspective on politics than (laughs) uh yeah significantly original writer did yeah yeah and then it kind of like it kind of pulls back a bit more um a little bit more He's a little bit more conservative for the 82 movie. Like there's, there's a joke in the 1982 movie that I, you know, when you watch a movie a million times as a kid, and then you have that moment when you're older where you're like, Oh, that's not just a weird thing. Grownups say that's a joke. And I understand it now. So there's this weird little subplot. It's very brief where a Bolshevik assassin tries to kill Daddy Warbucks and Sandy saves him by, like, attacking the guy. Right. So they, like, get rid of him. Like, he's marched off the property by the bodyguards, um, which are in and of themselves deeply politically incorrect. Mm. Although they they do come from the comic strip Punjab and the Asp. Like, it's... Um... But as uh, Grace is kind of leading Annie away back to her bedroom, she Annie says, was that man trying to kill Mr. Warbucks? And Grace says, yes. And Annie says, why? And uh, Grace says, because Mr. Warbucks is proof that the American system works and the Bolsheviks don't want anyone to know about that. <laughs> and I forgot about that line. Yeah, because like when you're a kid, you're like, whoosh, don't care about this. Nobody's right. tap dancing. <laughs> So it's interesting to see the way that like a text can yeah shift under those different climates. Right. Cause I mean, Annie is using politics a lot. Oh, yeah. the, the musical. I mean, I, I guess the comic strip did too, but I, I only know the musical, but yeah, is it, using politics to, you know, comment on, I guess, various aspects of, the story, I mean, Annie inspiring the New Deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, it, I, like, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous to be I, like, this country's in so much turmoil and people are starving. If only we had a 10-year-old girl to sing something very optimistic. Right. There's something about that that I really latched onto as a kid and there's something like fundamentally it kind of takes that whole that very classical musical like things are things are bad but if we sing a happy song and put on a show in the barn like we can turn it around and change our fates yeah, well, it also like gives it makes uh, as a kid viewer. It, it I remember feeling like kid like I had agency like in the yeah. world that I could influence people like that. What I said like had influence, you know that 
you know, if I said something, it could change things. And even, especially in the movie version, it's the, it's the kids who save Annie. Like the, the kids are the ones who like leave the orphanage. They they like sneak out of the orphanage. It's Mm -hmm. like a whole it's like a whole to do where they like have yeah the, not from the actual show but just to add the layer of like they all like take that matter into their own hands and like like we have we're gonna save Annie you know yeah but yeah like Annie you know she she is listened to she changes the heart of this captive industry who is so influential and she is brought to this highest political office in the country and she is respected as somebody who has opinions that are relevant to this discussion which is really satisfying to watch especially when you're a child right um and it i mean it's a very different text than superman but superman is a character i love because he's also about someone who seems like they are unimportant and doesn't have agency. And then it's revealed that he actually has the capacity for phenomenal good. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's really telling that both of these narratives, you know, have arise out of the 1930s and the great depression and this feeling of intense hopelessness. Right. And the idea that one person can make a difference and one person can inspire other people to make a difference i just love annie so much i know that's so good well and it's interesting too because then like seeing it as an adult i like i become less interested personally i become less interested in the kids and more interested in like the like how they're using the historical and political Mm -hmm. stuff to like you know tell this story and I remember finding it interesting, like one of their original opening numbers that was scrapped was like a kind of like a Hooverville type thing where they're like going around the streets of New York. And it's like, here's the apple seller. And I think the apple seller like appears in the show as like a quick character at some point. But like the opening number was like them going around, like looking at how the like the scene of New York and like how the depression mm-hmm. had affected New York. And it's like, yeah, as an adult, like that's, that's your way in, you know, and like yeah. that's your way into the story. Um, whereas like, then they realize that actually like, this is a show about Annie and like, it's going to open by focusing on her. And that's where you get maybe, which I yeah. think was originally like a second song in the show or something like that. Well, we're going to get back to talking about Annie a little later so let's um let's go on to talking about uh the next show from a comic which is spider-man turn off the dark the infamous uh <laughs> show musical from 2010 with lots of effects and flying and and fun <laughs> this is a 33 year gap between Annie and Spider-Man and like they're very different animals um they're not really similar in any way I mean Peter's technically an orphan they're not really (laughs) similar in any way except that they were originally pictures Mm -hmm. um but it's still interesting to note that after Annie it kind of seemed like 
the musical theater world just sort of gave up on. Yeah, I think there were some smaller shows here, here and there. Mm-hmm. There was a um, a Doonesbury musical. Oh my god. Uh, in 1983, with music by Elizabeth Swatos, who did Runaways. Um, That's so I don't, weird. <laughs> I don't know anything about it other than Elizabeth Swatos wrote it. Um, but so there was that. Uh, I think there were some, yeah, smaller musicals not on Broadway. But yeah, as t- in terms of like big musicals that made some kind of impact. Uh, culturally for musical theater yeah this is the this is the next one (laughs) full confession I did not see this one but I think you said you did right I did see it um what did you think I mean it was just so very much about the experience of being in the theater with this like I plot wise I could not like tell you what was going on (laughs) but um in terms of like musical theater crafts, like it made no impression on me in that way. <laughs> and I guess I saw like the version after Julie Taymor exited, which I guess was different from the previous yeah. one. I know there's a chronicle of this, which I, uh, by the, I, I think by one of the writers that I should read, but um, so that's the version I saw the, the second. <laughs> second version of it but um it it felt more like it was trying to be like a a visual experience um more like seeing a a spider-man movie you know on on stage than than anything else well we should talk about fun home um as the most recent uh musical to be adapted from uh well a graphic memoir but something with with pictures <laughs> yeah yeah it's a, it's a it's a comic they're all, all comics but yeah yeah right specifically a graphic memoir um I also sadly have not seen this one I had not read the I read the comic earlier this year mm-hmm. um I had never read it which is why I was like eh, I don't really feel the need to see this show um yeah. and then I read the comic and I like it just knocked me flat I was like this is a masterpiece and now I really regret not seeing oh yeah well I'm sure there'll be a way at some point yeah the the interesting thing about that adaptation is that they really use the the visual like they they're translating the the visual presentation of the comic form in their uh into the writing of the show mm-hmm. and the stage design um because i mean there is the character of allison who uh you know as an adult is you know a cartoonist so you see mm-hmm. her you, you like physically see her drawing you know the cartoons um but it's written into the show that she's like you know picture you know the yeah. like, spotlight you know it's and and it is like frames. I mean, the the book itself it goes back and forth in time, which the show also does. But um, but it it is like literally written into the text of the show that it is a comic that she's writing the comic, but it also is a comic. 
that's really in interesting. theatrical form yeah yeah no that's really interesting and I think it's something like I mentioned this before but I think that's something that you can do with this because it is one one discrete piece of work it is not a comic strip that ran for decades I mean even Peanuts was only Charles Schultz but it was right. 50 years of strips um and obviously like Superman and Spider-Man have been written and drawn and adapted by across so like you just can't distill it down into one thing but fun right. home is one book it, it's just one thing um with one creative I mean obviously a musical has many creative voices behind it um and I'm sure that Alison Bechdel had an editor but as a graphic memoirist she's able to write and draw her own very personal story so that it's right streamlined in that way um and I do I I did see um uh the Tony Awards that year um mm. they did Ring of Keys yeah um and like when I got to that part in the comic I was like oh yeah they copied that outfit exactly like the the outfit yeah. that she drew they put their cast in right um but like the comic itself is very recursive and that like there will be pages where she because she talks about emerging as an artist as well and there's drawings of her childhood drawings right which is such a like it's such a rich text because there's so many layers to like how she presents the information oh, I want to see this show <laughs> yeah well if you know the the you know recording there is a song um but it's the I can draw a circle song um I haven't and, listened to it oh okay so there's the song where she like the lyric is about like is about drawing and like this is here this is there mm -hmm. um but it, but it's also about like her her father um, yeah. But it's told as like a as like a she's drawing. Quick dashes mark the property ends. Beach Creek, a rope that turns and bends. Little squares for houses strung along roads. The land transfigured into topographic codes. Maps show you what is simple and true. Try laying out a bird's eye view. Not what he told you, just what you see. What do you know that's not your dad's mythology? Dad was born on this farm. Here's our house. Here's the spot where he died. I can draw a circle. His whole life fits inside. So things like that where like the it's all woven into the the writing of the musical as well. We should move on to our why is this so good section so we can all get right. back to talking about Annie. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because we're gonna talk about the song Tomorrow, the big uh most famous song from Annie. Um so why did you pick this song for why is this so good? I mean, I'm a tomorrow apologist. Uh you know, it's such a uh, punchline for this is so cheesy, this is so mm -hmm. corny, nobody likes this song, ugh, this song is annoying, um, and I, I mean, I 
would literally stand on my chair in restaurants and belt it out, which that's what, I mean, that is annoying. I don't blame people for thinking that that's annoying. Right. Um, but like at age three, um, I should specify not like last year because I couldn't go to restaurants. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, part of it is what we were already talking about, like where it sits in the play and the fact that it is this space that is carved out for this little girl to mm. sort of speak her truth and share her opinion and to be listened to and to change the temperature of the room with it. Um, right. I just, I'm always going to love a big belting song that like, is just as loud as it can possibly be. Right. Um, with those you know gratuitous key changes to <laughs> make it feel even louder um and there's something about the um I mean the lyrics are very simple yeah uh it is not it's not a complex song in any way um it's not you know I mean I'm not really musically trained in any way and even I can tell listening to it like it's very it's very simple um but I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing and there's something very the simplicity of the lyrics and the um uh colloquialness of yeah. the lyrics um like bet your bottom dollar right is, I was gonna say like it's it's you're right there with it you know you, yeah right it's in the in the time in the moment with that. exactly it's it's the, it's the time period it's how this character in particular speaks it just feels very it feels very natural and I you know it's it's easy to overlook I think how difficult it is to make it feel natural for somebody to just suddenly start singing right and that through line of this is this is how Annie speaks this is how this you know poor orphan from depression era in New York would express these ideas um, really helps it to, to stay believable, right. even though everything about the scene is completely implausible. The sun will come out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun, just thinking about tomorrow. People do, people say it's saccharine all the time. I understand why they do. Like, I am someone who likes an optimistic story. I like a feel-good story. I like happy songs. Um, but within the context of, like, this is a severely abused child. <laughs> like, it's played for laughs for the most part. Right. But, like, the Kids are abused. Miss Hannigan is abusive. Right. And they're orphans. And everybody's starving because it's the Great Depression. And I know a lot of people, and I, I understand why people would look at a song that's so relentlessly upbeat in that context and be like, that's ridiculous and not connect with it. But for me, 
the the resilience of it mm-hmm. um which is noted in the song itself with the um sort of the b section of when i'm stuck with a day that's gray and lonely that switches into again i'm not i do not know enough about music to say this <laughs> accurately but is that a minor key that it switches into? Okay, yeah. yes, yeah. I did it. I got it right. <laughs> like transitioning into that minor key to acknowledge like those low points and then coming back up into that major key and that key change, like yeah. the overcoming of that. It just it just makes me happy every time I hear it. As a kid, like I, lo- I loved that song, and I definitely sang it like all the time. Like that was the Annie song. But then, as I got older, and I loved different songs from Annie. Still loved Annie, but it was just different songs. And tomorrow mm-hmm. became like um, lesser and lesser. I, maybe you know, very toward the bottom of my list of songs <laughs> from Annie. Yeah. So when I we were thinking about this I was like why is so why is this song so good and why do kids love it and why yeah why did I love it and what is it about this song that's so good so I was trying to I was trying to figure it out like what (laughs) what is this what is it about this song and I think for me it's like well one like the melody I mean Charles Strauss we mentioned before the composer like I mean he he writes melodies that are just just so good and this melody is definitely one you just you just want to sing and um and yeah there I mean there's something there's something like you know the the sun will come out like it's it's like a skipping like to it there's like a little skip to it and like then it goes but I think what it really is for me is like I mean, for kids, you can really tell when they get to those held notes mm-hmm. and they're just, they just get to hold this note. And well, even just, even if you're not singing it, if you're just listening to it, listening to this held note like that. And while that's happening, like this, the music is, is moving under it. Like whether yeah. it's the orchestra, whether it's fully orchestrated or like just a piano, like there's this movement under those held notes that is really like emotional it's like something is happening. She's making something happen, as you said, like there's so much agency in it. saying about like the sun will come out like it's got a good mouth feel Mm -hmm. like (laughs) it's the only way I can think of like the the way that the making it sunnel instead of the sun will even though it would be (laughs) and part of that is putting it into Annie's dialect but part of it is just the much more satisfying way that sunnel comes off of the tongue than sun will it just breaks it up in a unpleasant way and there's also something musically about when it gets into the chorus like 
the tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. The way the second it, it the way the second note of those three is is or the second syllable of those words mm-hmm. is the one that's punched up. Yeah. Like the tomorrow, tomorrow, you know, like there's like an acceleration to it. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's just it's such a big song, mm-hmm. even though it's such a small song. Like it's yeah. I, I mean, I know like you know the other characters join in, but it's very often done as completely a solo. Right. Um, and I, like it is relatively simple, but it's mm-hmm. it's so big. Yeah, and I get so it happens twice in the in the show. So it's like yeah. in the first act, it's just Annie, and that's mm-hmm. that's powerful because it's like her alone on the stage singing the song. Well, yeah, she has Sandy the dog there, but um, he's not helping. Yeah, <laughs> and then in the second act, she sings it at the you know White House or where you know with the yeah. with the cabinet, and they all join in, and it's like that's how the new deal starts, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it's, so it like has this first effect of this, like this solo moment with her, with the audience. And then she brings it to uh, the cabinet and it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, and it becomes funny. Like, it's funny how yeah. the cabinet joins in. Like there's a lot of, there's comedy in it. Harold Hickey's stand up and sing. What? Sing. My favorite line is when uh, FDR, he's like, solo for the president, you know. <laughs> I just love the, um, you're only a day away. Mm-hmm. Like, that, which I hear some people, like, it's rendered sometimes as you're always a day away. And I'm like, no, that's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> that's way worse. You'll never get there. But only a day away is, is imminent. Like, because yeah. it's, it's not it's a song about joy but it's not joy in the here and now it's it's just joy that you hope for well cool let's move on to our last section even though i feel like i could talk about annie for hours (laughs) more but um uh, our last section is something wonderful where we just uh anything that we are excited about um upcoming or current that we want to give a shout out to i'm also really excited for the um in the heights movie because yeah i saw i saw it um what in like 2009 mm-hmm. um so it's been a long time and i don't remember it very well um yeah. And the the trailers looked amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm very like excited be, for that. Yeah, it looks like it's gonna be uh looks like it's gonna be good. Um for mine I'll do the um the Bengsons who are a uh husband and wife writing performing team uh who 
did another show earlier in quarantine called the keep going song keep going song they have a new uh virtual uh musical uh called my joy is heavy uh through arena stage and um i definitely recommend watching that um it's i don't want to say too much about what it's about but it's just a very beautiful piece and i feel like that with the keep going song uh they really are just uh really getting at an, an a certain as not all experience of quarantine but a certain experience of of what it's like in, to have lived through this year but um that's really good and that's through arena stage <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode.